Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core. I'm also the host of the popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. His new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published two months ago. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on the book and a broad range of other healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we also host the bi-weekly podcast, Coronavirus the Truth. Our guest today is Dr. James Madeira, the CEO of the American Medical Association and Chairman of Health 2047, a wholly owned innovation subsidiary of the AMA. Earlier in his career, Dr. Madeira served for 20 years as a tenured professor of pathology and director of the NIH-sponsored Digestive Disease Center at the Harvard School of Medicine, then chair of pathology at Emory University, and most recently, dean of the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. This is our sixth season of Fixing Healthcare. In our first season, we brought in nationally recognized leaders like Don Berwick, Eric Topol, Ian Morrison, and Zubin Damania, aka ZDogMD and ask them to describe how best to fix the American healthcare system. Their solutions were comprehensive, spanning across the realms of insurance, hospitals, the drug industry, and physician practices. This season, rather than asking for comprehensive solutions, we're going vertical and deep, inviting leaders from each of these areas to come and explain the work their organizations are doing to address the healthcare challenges our nation faces the problems they're encountering, and their perspectives on the future. And I can't think of a better first guest than Dr. James Madeira, the CEO of the American Medical Association. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you for having me, Robbie, and uh, great to join your conversation. And congratulations on completing 10 years in this role and for all you've achieved. Let me invite you to offer your views on the contributions the AMA has made, the work you're currently doing, and why the nation's largest physician association will be a major contributor to the healthcare, to solving the healthcare problems of tomorrow. Well, thanks. I will, would start at both ends of our 174-year span. Uh, we began uh, as an organization that was focused on uh, clinical ethics, and education and getting educational standards established for medicine. And there were none at that time. Uh, We were encouraged by the states to step into that space. As to the last 10 years, the more recent end of our spectrum, uh, we have a rolling five-year strategic framework uh, that has three components, dealing with the tsunami of chronic disease, Uh, hypertension and prediabetes in particular. Uh, Chronic disease entails about 90% of our nearly $4 trillion healthcare spend. And we're getting more and more chronic disease, not less and less. And now COVID is adding to chronic disease as well. And then the second uh, major uh, strategic arc is lifelong education, training physicians for the 21st rather than the 20th century. Uh, started with medical schools, a consortium of 37 medical schools, now reimagining residency and an educational hub as well that's digital and online. And then fourth, third rather, is removing the obstacles, the many obstacles that interfere with uh, patient-physician interactions so that we can get better outcomes and a healthier nation. And what we've learned across these three arcs Uh, is the three accelerators really speed the work in each of these arcs. And their advocacy, which is a way of memorializing uh, progress in legislation and regulation, innovation, uh, very important in all of these arcs, uh, and a different type, including our own innovation company uh, in Silicon Valley, 
uh, Health 2047. And then uh, the third uh, accelerator is health equity. Uh, if we really aspire to having uniform quality, safety, et cetera, we can't do that with the great inequity we have currently. So that's our strategic framework. It's uh, been having good progress, I have to say. And the other thing I would have to say around it, Robbie, is it really requires us to interact with others, to partner with other organizations to get these things done. Um, and those three arcs represent what I would call pre-competitive challenges. And what I mean by that is that if you can't make progress in these three areas, it doesn't matter what health system we have mid-century, it won't work very well. For any health system, regardless of the type, to work, we have to deal with chronic disease, we have to have physicians educated for the 21st century, and we have to have better interactions and more fluid interactions so patients and physicians can spend time together. You raise many key areas. I like to double back to all of them, but let me start with something you mentioned, which is COVID-19. Uh, it brought out the heroic side of physicians and physician culture with doctors providing care 12 and 24 hours at a time, often without the protective gear they need. Do you think they were adequately recognized for the heroic work they did? And how are we going to continue to support doctors going forward? Well, I think uh, physicians were well recognized. Uh, they just weren't well protected. Uh, and so it created uh, a sort of a moral uh, dilemma for many physicians and that they were used to running to problems and running to trouble, uh, if the trouble was disease, of course, but they always imagined that the system would have their back in terms of protective material and whatnot. That got straightened out, as you know, as the pandemic uh, went on, and it went from a need for stuff, stuff, stuff to a need for staff, staff, staff uh, later in the, in the pandemic. I, I think looking um, back on it, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, I, I hope we're on the other side. I, I would say that it was kind of an extraordinary function of our healthcare system uh, that showed a lot of resilience. It, there were times when it looked like it would break in certain cities. It really never did, although people paid huge personal prices for that resilience. And when we think of you know, the monoclonals, the new uh, vaccine platforms, mRNA platforms that were astounding in terms of the time and turnaround of those vaccines, when we think of physicians learning from each other how to stay away from ventilators, you know, simple things like pronation, uh, that were really helpful. It was really marvelous to see. But on the other hand, it did point out long-term systemic problems of our healthcare care system. And some of those were related to our strategic arcs that I pointed out, you know, we, the abundance of chronic disease. In fact, there were those with hypertension, diabetes, obesity, uh, were among those at highest risk for death. The challenging aspect of a physician working in the 21st century that is a team-based activity. We did learn also that if there was some more laxity given in paperwork and regulatory burdens, uh, physicians and physician teams of health professionals uh, could function better. Uh, we learned that we still suffer from lack of data liquidity and meaningful interoperability of clinical data. And then also punched out, of course, was the fact that our health disparities really put black and brown communities at substantial risk uh, relative to others. At the beginning of the pandemic, the average American viewed healthcare providers and public health experts as heroes. Um, like everything else in America right now, the pandemic has become highly politicized. 
Um, you still have people who view physicians and health care experts as heroes and others who've been frustrated with uh, confusing and inconsistent messaging from the government and public health experts, as well as, um, you know, things like those dancing TikTok nurse videos that were going around. Um, what are your thoughts on how the messaging of the pandemic has been to the general public? And how do you think that that could have been and could be improved for the future to really show kind of what heroes doctors and nurses actually are? Yeah, I, I think there are two things. Um, uh, you know, two, two things that immediately come to mind, Jeremy, that could be thought about. And the first is that the messaging around health and science uh, should come from trusted sources that are and not be politicized. So it doesn't matter if someone's on the left, if it's a politician on the left, a politician on the right, politician in the center. If that person becomes the mouthpiece for healthcare during a pandemic, it's immediately politicized. So, you know, leave the messaging to trusted folks that are in the field uh, and can give a balanced message. You know, specifically, would have been good to hear more of Dr. Fauci and perhaps less of those in the administration and political positions. The second thing I would mention uh, is we have to, I, I think we're never going to have the population entirely understand or want to understand the scientific method. You know, people are busy when they get home, they don't want to lecture on the scientific method. They want to have dinner and play with their kids. And so how do we, given the vagarities of scientific method, how do we think about that? Well, one way of thinking about that is to always be sure to use the right phraseology. And that is not, you know, we think that is not X should be done uh, at this stage of the pandemic. It, the phraseology should be based on our current best understanding. X should be done, allowing room for understanding and new evidence to mature. So I think some of the, the messaging was off base in both of those ways. Jim, a major advance during COVID-19 was telemedicine. What are your observations about what we've learned, the challenges that still exist, and the future of virtual medical care? Well, that is a really amazing story. You know, I would say that in three months uh, in 2020, telemedicine advanced in a way that I would think that it would have taken 10 years to advance. A lot of things were around that. Uh, some were patients didn't want to go into uh, hospitals and, and clinics. Uh, secondly, physicians needed to have follow-up with some of those patients and see them in a different way. But also critical were the regulatory domains were relaxed. Uh, and physicians, this was within a period of two months, it, it wasn't a 3x increase in telemedicine or 10x increase. It was a 100x or more increase in telemedicine. And I think, it, you know, not everything can be done in, by telemedicine. It's hard to palpate the abdomen uh, by telemedicine. Uh, but a lot can be done, and it could be, you know, upwards of, you know, 30, 40% of what needs to be done, particularly in follow-ups. Hopefully, the regulatory relaxation will be kept, and also the appropriate reimbursement. So, you know, one can have a sustained, sustainable practice will also be uh, kept. Uh, those things are being thought through now, it also puts a finger on the really radical change of where healthcare is done. Uh, you know, in my own career, we went from 60% hospital, 40% outpatient at institutions where I were to the reverse, 40% inpatient, 60% outpatient. And now we see it moving to home. Uh, and so we'll have this continual shift and the technology is going to be really important to make this work well. 
And one of the glitches that needs to be resolved is again, the, the interoperability uh, that occurs in the electronic record. In other words, you will need, you'll need point of care data from the home. You'll need ways of attesting that that's signal and not noise. You'll need ways of Bluetooth reporting that to the cloud and then downloading it into an EHR in a way that it can self-organize. And that's going to be very important in the development of that field. We've discussed on this show before this challenge and talked about the need for the electronic health record companies to open their APIs. Uh, do you see this happening anytime in the near future? Well, um, there's certainly some sticks being introduced by uh, ONC towards this end, but frankly, don't really see it happening very much. It still takes an effort by a patient to uh, get a record transferred. And you know, the, the, whole, the whole EHR systems, as you know, Robbie, were um, built from practice management systems. They're better for administration uh, claims and billing than they are for organization of clinical data needed at the point of care. Uh, and that's a problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, the major vendors uh, in our country uh, are still server-based and not cloud-based, uh, increases the cost and complexity of the system and institutions. Uh, so it seems to uh, us to be uh, an area in need of great overhaul. Jim, I saw an article today that said that 70% of physicians now work for either a hospital or a healthcare organization and that 50% of them are employed by these entities. I wonder how this has impacted the AMA and what do you see in the future? Yeah, so that, that's exactly right. Now, some of the employed are employed by physicians in larger physician groups. But you know, I, I think the, the number that you gave 50-50 uh, reflects some of our own, our own data and uh, experience, including you know, among those employed of the if they're employed by say an institution versus a physician's practice. So 50-50 sounds, sounds about right. What it means is that we are now engaging individual physicians as we always have, paying attention to them, uh, but also groups of physicians. So this is something that's happened in the last uh, two years. In fact, uh, one of your old stomping grounds, I believe at Kaiser Permanente uh, is one of our uh, groups that have uh, joined the AMA as members as a group membership. And there we take a slightly different approach. So for example, uh, those leading groups uh, or institutions that employ a lot of physicians uh, may not need some of the aspects that we have, uh, insurance project products, um, JAMA, they already have our journals. Uh, but what we can do is show them a tool where we can measure burnout rates uh, in their institution. We've then developed another tool in collaboration with Harvard Business School uh, that will allow them to estimate the dollar cost loss uh, sunk in having this degree of burnout. And then we have mitigation tools uh, to lower that, those degrees of burnout and we can predict if you lower it by one point, per point two points, five points, um, the economic impact that'll be had. And as you know, there are a lot of other impacts too. Burnout physicians retire earlier. They work fewer hours. Uh, there are risks in terms of quality and adverse events. Uh, so it's something that we really need to pay attention to and mitigate, uh, not only in the group practices, but in small practices as well. Jim, you mentioned equity, and I know the AMA has recently embraced and introduced uh, quite a number of initiatives around eliminating racism. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the past and a lot about the future? Yeah, so a little bit about the past, I would say this, that uh, you know, people think that, you know, there's an overt racism if you say something like structural racism. But if you look back at our own past, uh, you know, there's something familiar to you, uh, you know, the Flexner report of the early 20th century that 
had a consequence of making more academically rigorous programs in medical schools uh, and also had a consequence of having many medical schools uh, close. Well, among the medical schools that closed were the majority of at that time, uh, you know, African-American medical schools, but most universities at the time were not accepting African-American students. So a consequence, uh, untoward consequence that was unanticipated was freezing African-Americans out of the field of medicine. And to this day, we have fewer, particularly black men uh, that are serving as physicians in the United States. And so this is part of our past. Um, you know, we at one point thought that, you know, having more intellectual rigor uh, in medical school was a good thing, but then we looked at the consequences of this where there were some schools that had no place to land and then students that couldn't be placed because of, only because of their race. So that's the past that we have to live with. And I think every organization has a piece of that. Uh, it's similar story because that's, that's the history of our nation. Uh, so now going forward, uh, we have to recognize those things that happened in the past. We have to think about how we can correct them. We have to own our own pasts. Uh, and then we have to look to the future of you know, how we can repair and what is our role in helping repair uh, the inequities that occur in healthcare in this nation. What are a couple of examples that you're focused on right now? So uh, a couple would be uh, a creation of a health equity fellowship in collaboration with the Sachter Institute at Morehouse uh, Medical School. And these are some early and some mid-career uh, physicians that are interested in having a career devoted to this field of health equity and improving health equity. And so we build up a cadre of experts in this field. Um, the first group was just accepted. Uh, I believe there are between 10 and 12, uh, there, but there were over 200 applications. Uh, so that is one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is joining uh, a group here in Chicago called the, the West Side United. The West Side is an underserved, underserved uh, population in Chicago. And we have invested, as has Rush, uh, Northern Trust, and a few others, invested in a way that where the, the dollars will be used to impact the community as the community organizations see fit. Uh, and we will be there to help. And we see that as a model program that if successful uh, could be expanded uh, to other cities. Uh, a third example I'll give is from our uh, Health 2047 uh, innovation shop in the West Coast. And that's the launch of a company, uh, Medicare Advantage company called Zing. Uh, Zing, has the same economics as other Medicare Advantage companies, of course, but it crafts its benefits, its accoutrements uh, to underserved populations, as opposed to most MA programs that sort of mimic the programs that folks had in, uh, when they were employed in large corporations. Uh, so these are just a handful of ways, uh, and we have more that we're attacking this problem. You mentioned at the beginning, the AMA has a longstanding code of ethics, dates back, I'm sure, about 100 years, maybe even longer than that. Uh, but society is always evolving. How does the AMA think about the, the, whatever the code of ethics is at the time, whether it's outdated, how it needs to evolve, I mean, issues around social media, gun violence, consumerism, political divisiveness, the list goes on and on. Uh, how do you see this code of ethics as a living, evolving organization? And how do you know when it's not moving fast enough? That's a great question. You know, um, the first document produced by the AMA after its founding in 1847, that same year, uh, was the first code of clinical medical ethics 
Uh, I think that was the first code of clinical medical ethics in the world. Um, it's a one pager and it's hanging, a copy of it is hanging on the wall uh, in my office. The current uh, code of medical ethics runs over 300 pages and was just went through a major update a uh, year before last uh, because of all of the you know, issues around uh, transplant, treatment, harassment, um, these kinds of things. So it is a living document. It is uh, very complex and many institutions have adopted it uh, for their own code as well. As CEO, you're often put into a position of having to take a position around a piece of legislation or a political push. I can think back to originally the AMA was against Medicare, and now it's a very strong supporter of the program. How do you approach these problems? And again, how do you recognize when a decision of the past is not the best one for today or the future? So let me um, back off a little bit here and just say a word about our governance. Uh, you know, people think of us as a membership organization, and we are uh, about 270,000 uh, uh, physicians. We've had membership growth each of the last 10 years now, after about a 40-year decline uh, in membership growth. But another piece of the organization feels more like an organization of organizations, and that's our House of Delegates. Uh, it's composed of 180 medical societies, so the society of every state, uh, every specialty, the four branches of military medicine, uh, the territories, et cetera, uh, that make up the house. And the house is the instrument that defines the policy of the AMA. Now, although the numbers of direct members may be you know, 27%, something like that, as represented in the House of Delegates by these 180 societies, it's almost all physicians. Um, it's hard to identify a physician that doesn't belong to his or her state society or some specialty society. Uh, and so that's a voice of physicians broadly. There are about 600 delegates in the House. They debate in the same way Congress does. And those policies uh, represent the policies of the AMA. Now, there are over 3,000 of those policies. Um, so they tend to be, uh, say, more narrow than a piece of legislation typically is. So when a piece of legislation comes to us uh, and we work with uh, the regulators and trying to uh, sculpt it as well, uh, we're not looking for 100% alignment with policy, uh, you know, we're looking for 70, 30, 80, 20, and that we view as, a, as an overall win. Um, but there's not going to be a large piece of complex legislation that comes out of Congress uh, that aligns with every single policy uh, that we have and with no conflicts. So that's, that's the way we put it together. So let me take an example to me, which is the debate today between, I'll call it pay for volume and pay for value or capitation versus fee for service, the different, the two different variants of reimbursement. How does the AMA think about this issue, approach it, push in one direction or another? Where do you see the future moving? We think of it more in uh, that and more in ter terms of principles. So the principles are, um, is access increased or decreased? Is the safety net enhanced or diminished? Um, you know, are physicians treated in a way that there's some consistency over time? So they're, you know, not, they're not treated in a way where there's a fiat, uh, by fiat, their lives change, you know, every six months uh, or so. And then we look at legislation as to legislation that aligns with those principles. Now, um, we as an organization think that we're probably going to have a pluralistic uh, healthcare system. Um, I know there's been uh, a lot of uh, talk about Medicare for all, but as you know, it's not as though Medicare 
has no problems. It has a cap on it. Uh, there are several other issues around Medicare. Uh, what we'd rather do is look at a pluralistic system that abides by these principles. Um, and, you know, those principles being things like access, uh, consistency, removing administrative burden, strengthening the child health programs, protecting the safety net. I guess maybe I'm showing my bias now that I, I think that the capitated approach does that better by having physicians benefit when patients stay healthy and avoid disease and align with your chronic disease approach that's there. Uh, is that a direction you can see the AMA pushing towards moving American medicine or do you see it more as uh, the AMA having to respond to wherever American medicine moves? Yeah, so, you know, I think the answer is, you know, it depends. So if it's a two-sided risk capitation, is capitation with two-sided risk? Well, then the question is, you know, is the, is the uh, risk allocation uh, appropriate? And then the other question is, of course, uh, if you're a physician and you have 1,200 patients in your panel, um, one outlier can, can, can bring down the practice. Uh, so, sure, as long as it's done in a reasonable way. Now, I have to say a lot of people looked at capitational differently, particularly in the front end of the pandemic, um, when patients disappeared, uh, and these were people not doing critical care uh, at, at their institutions, and so they were kind of left without a busy practice. Capitation kept them afloat. In fact, for the first time, I heard that described as prepaid medicine during that period. So again, we think we'll be in a system where there's a pluralistic response. Some of it will be capitation, some of it will be um, other forms of, of, of health system responses. I do sometimes wonder, you know, Stuart Haltman at Brandeis um, in a talk, Tom was talking about uh, the Massachusetts experience. And he said the experience there was characterized by going after one complex variable uh, at a time. And the first complex variable they went after was access. And then after fixing access, uh, trying to get to the uh, issue of cost. Um, and it's true that healthcare is awfully complex and there are a lot of variables. And I sometimes wonder if by trying to create systems where you change five variables at once, how much you're really gonna learn. Interesting, because you're absolutely right. I mean, that's also been our nation's approach. The ACA took on um, expanding insurance coverage before it undertook reducing the cost of medical care. Yeah, and you know the other thing that's related to this that's been slightly frustrating for us is um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Innovation Center, uh, you know, wanted physician-led uh, programs uh, that would save costs, that would reduce costs, increase value, and you know the uh, you know physician technical advisory committee uh, was set up to help with this. Uh, there have been I know fewer than 16 programs developed anywhere from inflammatory bowel disease to uh, emergency department utilization uh, with cost savings and increase in, uh, in quality and outcomes that just have not been engaged and embraced by CMS. And we're disappointed in that. I know you're very focused on this issue, but primary care is obviously lagging in terms of fulfillment, satisfaction, numbers go down the list. It's uh, particularly adult primary care is a major challenge for the United States today. Uh, how does the AMA view this? And what do you see as the AMA's role in trying to address the, both the shortage and the great problems and difficulties that primary care physicians are experiencing today? Well, you know, we have several efforts in helping physicians in primary care practices. And there's work going on right now. And I, I would say, well, Robbie, our work is always typified by uh, first um, doing the science and collecting the evidence. 
on right now, we're looking at a series of practices that seem to be uh, efficient, uh, where physicians are pleased to be in their practices and trying to nail down definitionally what makes that so. Uh, the other thing I'll say even more broadly that goes beyond primary care, but almost all physicians, uh, is uh, relates to a series of, of studies we've done in collaboration with others. The first was with RAN Health uh, several years ago, maybe it was eight years ago, uh, seven, eight years ago, where we looked in multiple markets and we looked at what satisfied physicians and what dissatisfied physicians. So some were institutional, some were small practices, you know, all different modalities and fields. Uh, but the answer seemed pretty uniform. The largest satisfier was FaceTime with patients. And that FaceTime with patients gave physicians a sense that when they were driving home at night, uh, that they had done a good job for their patients that day. They had enough time to spend with patients. And the dissatisfiers were everything that deducted from that. Uh, so the administrative complexity, the, the use of the electronic medical record for data entry, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then a, a subsequent study was done multi-market again in collaboration with Dartmouth. And it's a study that's been well, well reported. Most people know what the study showed, but it basically showed that it was a time motion study and it showed that for every hour a physician spent face-to-face -face with a patient, which the RAND study shows is the intrinsic motivator, they spent two hours doing administrative burden. Um, and much of that was data entry. And that's not counting uh, another two hours on average of what was called pajama time you know, at home. Uh, and then a third study uh, that we're doing with Mayo and, and, and Stanford uh, we started with Mayo about 10 years ago, and we do every couple of years. This is a study of burnout, which is very high and has been increasing. So you can see that you, you know, these folks are in a cognitively complex field. Their intrinsic motivation is spent time with patients. Their reality is time with a computer and paperwork, uh, and they end up burned out. And so we have a lot of time that we could harvest from the physician workforce we have if we just made the environment around them function better. One of the opportunities I have besides hosting this podcast is to be on other people's podcasts. And I thought of that when you were talking about the AMA's commitment around medical education. Uh, one of the things that people often ask me is how do I think medical schools should evolve? And I point out the fact that if you wanted to carry all the medical knowledge with you uh, in the 20th century, even 1990s, you had to have a 50 pound backpack. And today we call it a smartphone. And I don't believe that medical schools have recognized that memorizing arcane facts is no longer the key skill that doctors have to have. And it's the actual application of that information. What are your thoughts about it? I know the AMA has taken a major a role in trying to evolve it. Where do you see it going? I, I think you're exactly right, Robbie. The, um, the way I would put it is in the future, how you learn may be more important than what you know. Um, of course, you have to have a base of knowledge, but having that base, uh, you can never take the base of knowledge that is broad enough given today's literature and numbers of diagnoses uh, the expansion of the literature uh, that we have. So that's going to be very important. One of the uh, ways that we're thinking about that with our own uh, EdHub is to create a digital platform where education is much more easily accessed. Uh, so we've created this for all the AMA content, anything from JAMA to ethics uh, to um, health system science. And then we thought if we could create a program uh, backbone, digital backbone that was attractive enough that others would wanna use that too, we could co-brand. And that's been the case. We started this about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And now we have uh, several major societies, the first being the College, American College of Radiology and others. We have organizations 
that provide genetic information and content uh, like Jackson Laboratories. Um, Stanford as a school uh, is on the backbone. Uh, we now have three state licensing organizations on the backbone. Uh, and we have uh, multiple boards like the uh, board, American Board of Internal Medicine on the backbone. And so one can get a digital, digital content uh, more readily. As soon as you get that digital content, the CME is registered and goes to your board. Um, and then ultimately, as we get more boards and states can also be used for state licensing. So that drag is no longer there. Uh, a promising tool that we're, we'll be uh, trying in the field this year comes from a collaboration with Health 2047, our, our shop in the West Coast. And it's a AI-driven uh, tool that can go into a physician's panel, uh, the electronic record representing that panel, uh, interrogate uh, that panel in terms of what is actually seen in that practice and then create bespoke uh, curricula so that we don't have physicians doing this box checking anymore where you know, they, they, based up on their general field, um, they're required to uh, know things that have nothing to do with their practice. So I think those kinds of approaches will be needed in the future as well. Dr. Bader, a lot of people see just how much lobbying power the healthcare industry has, including from organizations such as yours, and worry that this lobbying power helps shape legislation that is in the best interests of profit for the healthcare industry, not in the best interest of the patient. What are your thoughts on that? And how, do you, uh, how would you explain that to a Washington outsider or just a patient who's kind of curious about the healthcare lobbying industry in general and AMA specific efforts in lobbying? Yeah, thank you. At a meta level, we lobby for one thing, and that's our mission statement. And the mission statement is to promote the art and science of medicine and the betterment of public health. And then under that mission statement are the policies of the house that make what we lobby for more granular. And those relate to the principles that I outlined. Uh, those principles you know, would include greater access, uh, stronger safety net, stronger children's health program, uh, consistency uh, in the healthcare system, removal of administrative complexity so people can spend time with patients and patients want that, seem to want that extra time with their physicians as well. So those are things that we lobby for. Now, does some of that touch on uh, compensation? Well, yes, because the, you know, any field and any employed individual does not want their, their compensation to um, volley around up and down by fiats. Uh, you know, everyone wants some consistency. Uh, if they stay in their job for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, they would like to have some consistency during that time and not have high volatility. Uh, and so it's really largely about the larger mission statement, the overarching mission statement, uh, to the degree that it touches on things like compensation, it's really about the having something that's stability, that's stable and, and practical, which every employee in the United States aspires to. Two last quick questions. The first is in our last season of Fixing Healthcare, we talked about physician culture, values, beliefs, the norms that we learn in medical school and residency and carry with us throughout our professional careers. What do you see as being the best parts that we need to keep? And what do you see that needs to evolve? Well, I think the intrinsic motivation for entering the field we need to keep and the altruism around that. But frankly, um, we beat that out of our students a lot during their, their time in medical school. And they, they, they can lose that professionalism and they can become somewhat damaged and cynical. Uh, and that is something that I think is really important to fix now. 
And frankly, that cynicism that is a its own curriculum in medical school by those that are, you know, on faculty and, and house staff and whatnot, uh, some of that I think is also driven by the elements that I mentioned. Uh, people going into a field with the aspiration of seeing people face to face and helping, um, and then seeing that it's you know the the administrivia aspect of it. You know, one of our one of our uh, newer programs, which is reimagining residency. So we had 37 medical schools. The question is, well, now, how do you make a smooth handoff of these students uh, going through an innovative program to the residency? So we created a program, reimagining residency, uh, just launched. There are 11 healthcare systems uh, that are funded through this mechanism uh, projects. One of the projects is a joint project from by um, Hopkins, uh, Stanford, uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. And the first part of that is, well, now we know how physicians spend their time, how do residents spend their time? As a resident with time motion studies, residents in, on different services uh, will on average spend far less than 50% of their time when they're in, this, in the institution, either in education or directly seeing patients with patient care. You know, it's a, it's a system that's set up to build a kind of cynicism for those that enter with this other altruistic thought in mind. And it's not surprising that we see burnout in medical school and burnout in residency and burnout continue into clinical practice. Last question. Uh, I want to applaud the AMA for the positions you've taken around anti-smoking legislation, efforts to control the opioid epidemic, and a focus on obesity. Uh, now we have gun violence, climate change, immigration, social determinants of health. Are we asking doctors to take on too many of society's problems? Yeah, I think there is, you know, physicians are going to weigh in, but the question will be, you know, what is our role in the larger ecosystem? There are some things we'll be primarily responsible for. There'll be other things where we're part of that team. Uh, but much of what you've laid out, you know, we have policy around, but the policy and sometimes was you know, defensive in nature. So for example, pediatricians in Florida were being told that they could not, if they thought they should, they could not ask their patients if there were firearms in the house that were available to them. Uh, you know, these are things that directly affect the ability to practice medicine. Um, so we have pieces like that that are directly related to, you know, the practice of medicine, that things that happen in the physician's office. And then we have the downstream events where, you know, it's the folks in the emergency departments and our trauma units uh, that have to deal with the consequences of gun violence as well. What do you think it's going to take for Americans to regain their faith in the American healthcare system and public health experts? Um, it's not just in terms of the pandemic messaging, but in the face of rising healthcare costs and just seeing you know, how far behind the industry is when it comes to things like price transparency uh, and more consumer-friendly technology. I think like anything else, well, first of all, um, I'll take physicians as an example. Um, you know, the yearly assays of trusted populations among the population still has physicians uh, near, near the top or at the top uh, in terms of trust. But the reason, I think the way you improve your reputation is, is through facts and action more than uh, PR. So, you know, you create systems that allow interactions from your home with physicians that are productive and meaningful. You have physician-led teams um, that work well. You do decrease the administrative burden so physicians can spend more time with their patients, which we know uh, patients want as well. In terms of the public health system, the public health system, I think, was you know, affected in the following way. During the SARS epidemic, more funding went to it. 
after the SARS epidemic, uh, folks looked around for money and they chipped away at the uh, public health infrastructure. And then lo and behold, during the pandemic, public health uh, infrastructure was not well established. Uh, I should say there are probably data transfer problems within the public health system from city to uh, county to state uh, to federal. Uh, and that mirrors the problems in data flow uh, through the healthcare system as well. Um, so both systems have that problem of uh, data flow and data liquidity and data organization. Uh, and then lastly, I think we have to define in a clear way a better interaction, structural interaction between public health and healthcare, for beginning by defining who's responsible for what. Jim, any final words you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, I, I'll just say that, you know, healthcare has been under a lot of pressure. Physicians are burned out, problems we have to deal with that, you know, particularly after the pandemic. But all in all, it's a just a wonderful, wonderful profession to be in. Uh, it's um, wonderful to be part of a population that help, helps caring for people. Uh, and so I hope folks that listen to this will consider that as a career option. And like you, Jim, becoming a physician was the best professional decision I ever made. I want to thank you for being on this show today. Your comments were incredibly insightful and your vision for the future is one that should inspire all of us, whether we're physicians or patients, but all of us want the best for the American healthcare system. Thank you again, Jim, for being here today. Thank you, Robbie. Thanks, Jeremy. Robbie, what do you think about what Dr. Madera said? Jeremy, I was impressed by the three areas of his current focus. First, chronic disease holds the key to the future of American healthcare. If poorly managed, as it is today, it could bankrupt our nation and continue to reduce life expectancy. Second, medical education is the most effective path to evolving physician culture. As doctors, we currently have the tools needed to improve clinical quality, to make care convenient and to lower cost. But we need to train the next generation of doctors on how to use them. And finally, as he said, the physician-patient relationship is the foundation of superior medical care. Unfortunately, over the past two decades, it has been eroded by a combination of a broken healthcare system and a medical culture left over from the last century. Both the system of medical care delivery and its culture need to evolve in the future if we want to improve the health of patients and the professional fulfillment that medicine offers. I know that our next set of guests will have their own thoughts on how to accomplish each of these necessary improvements. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on physician culture, you can find it at robertperlmd.com. Congratulations, Robbie, on the success of your book. I know it will stimulate discussion and debate and improve healthcare for all Americans. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or your other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.